Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Natalie McLean, wine podcaster and writer. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Hey, Robert, Peter, it's good to be here with you. <laughs> I was hoping you could give our listeners a background about your experience in wine and, you know, what do you write about? What is your podcast about? And what is your kind of overall platform? Sure. Well, I didn't start off in this industry as a lot of people don't. I kind of stumbled into it. I did an MBA. And then afterwards, I went into consumer packaged good marketing, at P&G, and then high tech. And then I thought, well, you know, I'll... Uh, I'll take a sommelier course for fun at night because golf and Spanish just did not stick. And once I got into this course, it ended up being a diploma program. I thought, oh, this is perfect for someone who's just a little more than slightly obsessive compulsive. This satisfies everything. So as you know, wine ties together art and geography and science and commerce and history, even religion. And then, you know, we get the five senses you know, the taste, smell, and so on. So it's a full sensory experience layered on top of that. And I think what makes wine different from food, and this gets short shrift, I think, is that it's a drug. Now, I know in excess, it's dangerous, but I think there's a power in the fact that there is a buzz and you can get these mind-altering states. You know, Michael Pollan has just started writing about that. Omnivore's Dilemma, How to Change Your Mind. Or ayahuasca. He's a big ayahuasca proponent. There you go. Exactly. And I think we overlook that with wine often. Anyway, so long-winded answer to say wine brought it all together for me. It was a full-bodied experience from, you know, mind to heart to, to full body. So, um, yeah, that's how I got started in it. That really turned me on to wine. And then it started with just cold-calling editors, getting published in, in magazines and newsletters or newspapers, eventually writing a couple of books that led to the courses and the uh, the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. And here we are. So, but what made you jump from, I like this product, it's, I find it, I find it, you know, intriguing mentally and, and super engaging to, I want to like write about that. And yeah. I want to make content about that because that, that's a that's a different level of commitment. It as is. Peter and it I is. well know. <laughs> so. <laughs> exactly. And I didn't even drink alcohol until my late twenties. Like after I graduated from wow. the MBA, I wasn't even into beer, whiskey, spirits, anything. Came from a Nova Scotia family, and that was just too bitter. It turns out I'm a super taster, so that's probably why. But whatever. So, but wine, wine had it. So I remembered. I remember, um, well, actually, it was wine in a restaurant that really turned me on. It was a Brunello out in a restaurant. And um, I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is unlike anything I've ever tried. And it was the search for words to capture the experience. Words failed me. I didn't know how to describe it. But I knew I wanted more of it. And I wanted to understand it more. Because, again, I just, that wasn't my world not even booze, <laughs> but I thought I need this in my life and I need to know how to talk about it. So super taster, meaning you have a lot of taste buds, a higher concentration of taste buds. Yes. So Tim Hanai, yep. uh, Hanny, did that test Hanai. where they dye your tongue blue and then they get in with all kinds of contraptions and look at that. But it's a, it's a sensitivity to bitterness, which probably explains mm -hmm. why I didn't get into beer and whiskey. I just found them too bitter. 
That's why I was going to be surprised that Brunello would, would be the wine that got you into wine, given it's highly tannic, therefore highly bitter. Because normally people who have a high concentration of taste buds will prefer sweet. And so like sweeter wines and less bitter things. That's true. It was an Italian restaurant, so they didn't have anything sweet. But <laughs> the Brunello had that fruit component that softened mm-hmm. the bitterness. And so, you know, I think the bitterness would have hit me at the back. But I remember the first taste and going, this is delicious. And it smells good, too. So what's going on here? So you, you're truly a multi-channel, multimedia wine person in Canada with like books, a subscription website, a newsletter, wine courses, videos, TV appearances, podcasts. I'm going to run out of words, I think. A mobile <laughs> app. How do you split your time between all those different things? Well, it helps that I'm an insomniac to begin with. <laughs> so, <laughs> But uh, really, uh, the majority of my time these days goes toward the online food and wine pairing courses. I love it. My, my mother was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. I feel like I'm coming full circle to what I love to do, which is the writing and the teaching. And so with the online courses... Students come to me from around the world. I am based in Canada, but my audience is global. I mean, I would say the concentration is in the U.S. and Canada, but then I get students from Europe and the U.K. and Australia and so on. But what happens is that even after they finish the course, they get lifetime access to all the materials and I do biweekly tastings with them. So they get lifetime access to me as long as I'm still kicking. And it becomes kind of a tasting group for them. And they connect with other wine lovers. And it's a way to continually improve their skills. So I find it appeals both to the beginners who come along the journey and learn about wine. But it also appeals to a lot of hospitality and trade staff. Because they, they're looking for those tasting groups, especially during the pandemic. It's just convenient, right? You can do it from home. I mean, we all know Zoom and everything else. But I think there's still that connection that can happen and that regularity of meeting with the same people who share your passion. Mm. So what do you consider yourself then a wine educator or I know you review wine. So is it a wine critic or a journalist and influencer? Some of these words are probably outdated these days, but. Sure. I, I think wine storyteller is the common thread through everything. So in my books, the first one was red, white, and drunk all over. So you can imagine how seriously I take my topic and myself. But I love day in the life approach, sort of the new journalism school, Truman Capote, Joan Didion, and so on. They did what they wrote about so that they could get deeper insights into their topics rather than just sort of only interviewing someone or watching from the sidelines. So I became a sommelier for a night in a five diamond restaurant. I worked the harvest with Randall Graham at Bonnie Dune in California. I worked in a New York liquor store and a San Francisco store to see about buying wine. So each of those experiences, I extracted stories and then wrapped up in these stories were ways to or tips on how to you know, buy, pair and taste wine like a pro. But it's kind of, I, I hearken back to my mom who always hid my peas in the mashed potatoes. So, I, so <laughs> education is snuck in there because we're, as you know, we're wired for stories. We love stories. Mm-hmm. And it's the stories that are the hook to hang the learning on. Like, I think you really need to remember 
or you, we best remember things through stories. Like I went shark diving and then of course we retire from shark diving off the coast of South Africa in my second book, Unquenchable, and of course talk about seafood and wine pairings. No sharks were harmed, but you know, I, I'll do or milk a goat and then we're talking about cheese and wine or whatever, but it's the story wrapped around the learning that is my focus. Cool. Cheese terroir. Exactly. Interesting. So, so who would you, if you're, so say you're going to write an article for someone or do something for a brand, who, how would you describe your core audience to a consumer or to uh, a brand if they were going to work with you or a publisher? Right. I think because of the focus on storytelling and on the practical side, the food and wine pairing, it is pretty broad because I find um, like even, as I say, hospitality and trade will come take my courses because of the focus on food and wine pairing, which often gets overlooked or just it's not a heavy focus in some of the more formalized courses. But that's, you know, that, that approach appeals also and is less intimidating to those who are just beginning their journey. Everyone loves stories. Everyone loves food and wine pairing, you know, but if I'm talking about it from, say, an advertising perspective or you know, someone who wants to work with our community, it, we can, you know, we, we have 300,000 subscribers to the, the newsletter. So we can target, we can target geo target or target pockets of who's buying what and all that sort of thing. So it becomes very much segmentation after that. But I, I'd say we, you know, our, our population or our community sort of falls out along the general population with high end, your collectors or whatever being, you know, very small percentage and then a broader swath of uh, everyday wine drinkers. So, so trader mainly coming to you for the focus on food and wine pairings. Consumers are coming for the, the backstory, maybe a little, maybe somewhat less like rigid tasting structure and that maybe some of the WCT or things like that have there or less competitive of some of the quartermaster summits would have. Okay. So that's interesting. And then I noticed that on your website, you also have like the prices of wines, but you're based in Ottawa. Like, how does that work if you have a large audience in the U.S. as well? Are you using like LCBO pricing, using like wine searcher pricing? How are you kind of translating that cross-border thing? Because the pricing is going to be quite different between U.S. and certain parts of, or certain parts of the U.S. and Canada. Right. So it's usually a pleasant surprise for my U.S. subscribers because it's like deduct 30% and you're good to go. But I do use LCBO pricing. My um, mobile apps, they uh, they scan the barcode and the front label. So I don't know of any other apps that do both. There's a lot of front label scanners and there's a few oh. back barcode, but we do both. It's integrated. We don't have barcodes on a lot of... Right. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. So, but uh, what we've integrated is liquor stores across the country, their pricing, but also real-time geo inventory. So, mm-hmm. you know, I can tell if you let me through the app, where where you are, the closest liquor store to you that has the wine, how many bottles are in stock, and the price at that liquor store. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it goes back to my high-tech geekiness. Uh, <laughs> it was one of the first things I did when I transitioned from high-tech into wine. That's just an API into like the LCBO's inventory. I guess that's easier to do when you have monopoly markets. If you were in California or New York and there's like, tons of retailers around that'd be really tough to do or even Alberta exactly where it's privatized but a lot of the other provinces are still sort of uh, pre-prohibition so one of the few advantages but yeah so when it comes to people who live outside of Canada they still find the information helpful in that it's 
clean data. I mean, you know, the vintage is correct. The blends are correct. I mean, there's, you know, 90 other pieces of information about each wine. Um, so the price will be different and you'll need to find it locally, but they still find, you know, the virtual seller in the app and all kinds of things, uh, buy list, wish list, buy again, all that kind of thing. Those functionalities are still useful. So I'm curious, and uh, being American and you're in Canada, uh, what's the reception or, or how are American wines perceived in Canada in general? Do you feel like comfortable enough to speak about that? Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, I know that the four big regions are well represented here. So California, Washington, Oregon, and New York State. And uh, they all have pretty good marketing campaigns. So they care about this market. I think we're your number one export market, I believe. I could be wrong on that. But but it, uh, yeah, what happened during the pandemic was interesting. All wine consumption rose. Certainly the bottom end rose, but premium wines also rose. I don't know if this happened in the States. So those who were staying home with disposable income, and particularly those who had, you know, I think they say $60,000 and up, those were the people who could stay at home, stay employed, but they no longer had the money to spend or they couldn't spend their money as much on restaurants, travel, et cetera. So they ratcheted up on premium wines. And for us, that's often those from the U.S., not just because of the exchange rate, but because that's kind of the tier that they're in for the, for the most part. So they've done really well. U.S. wines across the board. And I believe, I think that's going to stick because people have had a taste of better wines as they jumped, you know, not not the whole gain, but I think there'll be a permanent effect on, on U.S. wine purchase here. Just for definition purposes, when you say premium wine, is that $20 and above or what's the definition? Yeah, I know that there's some really seemingly low definitions of premium wine. Like in the industry, it's sometimes, I don't know, like 10 to $15 or whatever. Right, right. But yeah, I think of it as over $20. Okay. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Canadian dollars. <laughs> <laughs> would you say that there is a, a Canadian palate? Like, would you say based on your experience and tasting with uh, students from different parts of Canada that they have a, a slightly different palate than the U.S.? And if so, how? Our wines, which are pretty awesome, um, are all made in a cool climate. We, we really don't have any warm climates here. Even B.C., which is the end of the Sonoran Desert, is still considered a cool climate. So as you know, what that means is that they're edgy and nervy in terms of their acidity. They don't tend to be fruit bombs. So, But at the same time, we don't have... We don't have that long culture of wine drinking that a lot of European countries have had. So I think if we put that all together, if there is such a thing as a Canadian palate, it's probably more toward those cool climate wines. There's a lot of experimentation, but we didn't grow up with like very ripe. We grew up with beer and whiskey. <laughs> We're a northern climb kind of region. That's our heritage. We make beer, we make whiskey, but not wine until recently, <laughs> the last 25 years. And how is ice wine then considered in Canada? It's a, it's a home product. Is it something Canadians actually enjoy more frequently or like the rest of the world, sweet wines are kind of out of favor and it's a specialty item? Well, ice wine, as you know, put us on the map globally, uh, winning made the first major awards in international competitions. And um, so ice wine is good for us as a flagship but it, it it's a double-edged sword. It can also be just like 
kind of stereotyping like maple syrup, Mounties, moose, beaver tails. So I think it's great that it led the way and it was a premium product. But now I think the challenge is broadening that perception of Canadian wine because we make spectacular, you know, Pinot Noir, Riesling, Chardonnay, sparkling wine, Gamay, Cab Franc. And those wines don't have the same distribution as ice wine, but that's what's here and what's exciting uh, for people. It's a lot discover. higher volume production than ice wine as well. Exactly. Yeah, it's been maybe 15 years since I've had you know, many uh, still Canadian wines. So you mentioned you have a passion for the food and wine pairing and, and that element. Is that your core content or how else would you describe your core content given that you do a lot of wine reviews and, and other wine education, et cetera? Sure. I think food and wine pairing is my core focus in terms of content on the site. It's part of the books, but not the, I, I haven't written wine and food pairing books. They're more like adventure stories or however you want to characterize them. But food and wine pairing is definitely what I do because I have a lot of tools on the site that do matching. I have recipes that are all paired with wines. The mobile apps will pair the wines as well and the articles. And I just think that, you know, food is such a an easy way to come into the wine category, but it's also a fascinating way to grow your knowledge as you become more expert. And so, you know, there's, you look at a roast chicken, we're not checking its vintage chart. It's not overwhelming. It's not like you're standing in the supermarket looking at rows and rows of different types of roast chicken from different regions and sub appellations. I mean, it's really easy. We don't, we're not intimidated by roast chicken. So if we start with the food and then pair it with the wine, as a way to understand more about the wine. I think that's a lot more accessible without dumbing it down. Because of course, then you can get into sauces and preparations and different wines that might work and all the rest of it. But I think it's a great jumping off point. And you mentioned Tim Hanai uh, earlier and his work. Do you leverage a lot of his research in your practice, uh, you know, using acid and salt and other things to adjust the food to pair with the wine? And I think his motto is drink the wines you like, right? Yeah. And eat the, Pair the eat wine the food to the like. diner, not the dinner. Yeah. I love his philosophy and I, I really enjoyed meeting him. He, he changed the way I, I thought about food and wine that often you can calibrate. Like, as he said, if you've got this steak and you somehow ended up with maybe a wine, a white wine or whatever, that's not the classic match, put some salt on your steak and see how it transforms the wine and the pairing just might work for you. And, but I do love his pair the wine to the diner, not the dinner. I think that's fabulous. It, it it tells us all just to relax. If the pairing doesn't work, have a bun in between, um, not to get too uptight. But yeah, I think, you know, with Tim, it was um, almost spooky when he did my assessment because he not only told me I was a super taster, he said, I'll bet you cut the tags out of clothing. And I said, how did you know that? <laughs> and uh, But it's it's all about, you know, being highly sensitive to mm -hmm. a lot of things. So I think his way of looking at things, looking at wine as an integrated part of how you perceive the world is, is really amazing. So which of the content, whether it's the food and wine, which you said you have classes and stuff about, or the reviews, which of that content tends to drive people to like sign up for a class or pay for a newsletter or something like that? Well, I kind of think of it like um, 
Jeff Bezos, in his one of his books, he has the communication flywheel, right? So you can come in different ways, whether it's the mobile apps, the books, the newsletter, and so on. I think at first it was the books because they did very well. And Amazon actually named them both best books of the year. So that means they were pumping it up on their algorithm. Cool. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> it really helped sales. Well, especially Unquenchable, the second book. I was mentioning my website more because mm. this is back in 2011. Red, White, and Drunk All Over was 2006, kind of the Paleolithic era of the <laughs> of the internet. Um, I'm feeling very old. But uh, so it brought people into my world through the books. And as you know, books are such a, a deep connection. You've written one, Peter. I'm not sure if you've written one yet, Robert. Not yet. Plan to. Okay. All right. There's always time, of course. But, you know, they take that deep dive with you and they stay with you. It's kind of like podcasting, too. I find the two very similar. You know, we know that podcast listeners stay with you. Like we, uh, studies show that people will listen to a 30, 60 minute podcast 80 to 100% of the way through. Whereas, you know, Facebook video, they're gone average in like 30 seconds or two minutes, even if they were intent, you know, intentionally there. Um, we've just, there's a different kind of attention and engagement with both books and with podcasts. And so to answer your question, I think, you know, at first it was the books, but they've been a while still. I still get royalty checks, though. So they do last, Peter. I know you were wondering. Good, <laughs> and, except mine are too small. <laughs> too niche, well, niche market. <laughs> well, this, these days it's all about the, you know, long tail, right? So people will find you and your book on luxury wine marketing. I can't wait to talk to you about that on the podcast and Robert to you as well about the work you've done, but they will stay with you. And I, I think now the transition though has been to the podcast in terms of listeners until I hmm. publish book three. So. <laughs> so I'm, I am curious on terms of the synergy between those things, because, you know, I, I definitely agree with you that podcasts have this, whether it's at, from the advertising front or just from the storytelling front, it, you hearing there's so much fidelity in the human voice that hearing mm -hmm. that, especially when you're not looking at something actually makes it in some ways makes it like resonate better. And I could see where, you know, I like to talk. I'm not the best writer. Hence, I haven't written a book. Uh, but also, but then there's, then there's all these other things in terms of social media that are, is much more ephemeral content where it's, where it's kind of like in the moment it's, you know, it hooks you, it needs a hook in the first couple seconds and go from there. But it, it's hard to be good at all of those areas. And then not, not only, and then you also mentioned your mobile app and it's hard to get people to download an app these days. It's not like, uh, it, you know, it was 10 years ago where there weren't that many selections in terms of things. There's so many apps on the, on, on all these stores. So I'm curious on like, how do you play in so many spaces at once? Cause that, um, we, I, you know, I do social media, we do the podcast. I already find that daunting, let alone all the other things that you're doing. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I have a short attention span, um, but I've, I've been at this for a long time. It's been 20 years since I started writing about wine. So, you know, you build up over time and you bring people into your world over time. I mean, you know, with the 300,000 subscribers is not last year, it's 20 year journey. <laughs> so, but I think, you, you know, over time, you also narrow down what it is you love most and what do you focus on? So the mobile apps, I haven't made a lot of updates to them in the last two years. They automatically feed in my new wine reviews, but that's not me adding them manually. So those kind of run on their own. They're not taking up a lot of time with the podcast. You know, I'll repurpose it on Facebook Live. So I'm trying to, you know, recycle <laughs> where yeah. I can because you want to go to to consumers or listeners or readers where they're at. 
So, you know, there's a certain audience who listens to the podcast, but there's, there's others who are on social media, but I'm cross-purposing the content a lot as well. So that helps. But, you know, it, it, it is, again, I, I'm really jazzed about the podcast right now and the potential of podcasting. I'm so glad you guys are are in this space as well, because Robert, you talk about the fidelity of the human voice and it's almost better if there's no visuals. I totally agree. It's like you're millimeters from somebody's brain. It's very intimate. It's almost like it sparks off the theater of the mind. And there's nothing like it. You co-create that experience, you, your listener and you through your voice. It's very, very powerful. So, you know, I think you guys should double down and <laughs> the podcast is the way to go. Podcasts and books. It's while they're stuck in their car or on a train. So we're just like subliminally programming them. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And yet you take a journey. So over time, they feel they know you like your friends. And um, I love that. Like, I, I love that connection, the deeper connection that I just can't seem to find on social media. Well, and the other thing is like, we've we've dabbled a little bit in advertising for the podcast and and the fact that Peter and I talk about something and we try to make it so it's personal. Like we're trying to make it so it's not just, you know, someone else pre-recorded thing into our podcast because we, we think that yes. wouldn't be authentic to our voice. So I'm curious for you, like in terms of revenue drivers for your business is, and I'm curious on how it's changed over time. Like obviously you have the book royalties, you have the apps and the subscription for your newsletter, but then you have the podcast. Like where is the main revenue coming for you now from which channel and and have you seen that change over time? Sure, it would be the courses and that has changed because it's just in the last five years that I've been offering food and wine pairing courses. So I didn't have that at the beginning. At the very start, it was magazine and newspaper articles, but that's kind of dried up. <laughs> Oh my goodness, it's so tough. I don't know how anybody makes a full-time living. I just heard fighting. Forbes pays $50 an article. Oh uh, yeah, like what's that going to get you? Exactly, and newspapers are even worse. I mean, it's just the, the rates, but as you know, the columns have just dried up completely as well. I only have one magazine article right now and it doesn't even keep me in California Cabernet, so, but I still do it. But so the, the majority of income would be the online courses and then followed by the wine reviews subscriptions. I do have advertising that would probably come in at number three. And then, you know, the books have trailed off because it's been so many years, but I am writing another one. So I have hope. <laughs> And so for the courses, is your goal to add on more courses that they can, I mean, over time to build up like a library of different things? Like I think of like the Wine Scholar Guild has kind of like started with French Wine Scholar and then, you know, essentially expanded over time. Exactly. My approach will be two courses only ever. Because I think, you know, I, I don't know if it's Procter & Gamble that taught me down to taught me to double down on a unique selling proposition and stop trying to be everything to everybody. But, you know, my my course right now is the Get Wine Smart course or the Wine Smart course, a full-bodied framework to pair, buy, and taste wine like a pro. That is the course I offer right now, and it's very much focused on food and wine pairing. I've done a second course, a beta on wine and cheese pairing that's just that topic, and that's huge. Oh. So, but and I'm gonna launch that sometime <laughs> when I have the time. It went very well in beta and I'm going to launch it as a full-fledged course with you know Evergreen or uh, Lifetime Access. But that's it. I just want to perfect those courses. I want to keep adding to them. I want to find better ways to market them. I don't want to, you know, shiny new syndrome. What is it? Shiny new thing syndrome. I don't want to chase after 
a bunch of different courses because I can't do that. I can't be all things to all people. I want to do what I do better, deeper. Uh, so that that will be my strategy. Two only. That's it. And I am curious on and if you know obviously you do uh, wine reviews, and I noticed that you do have a, a, a score, but you're also telling these stories about these wines. And have you thought over the t- over time to sort of go away from scoring and just and just put your opinion out there in words and in the story and and give the background and walk away from it because it seems like those the number and the story are sometimes maybe at odds with each other. Yeah, they are. I mean, how can you trap a subjective experience in a score? And we all know it's one moment in time, one person's perception. How useful is that? The first three years that I wrote about wine, I did not score wines. I thought that's just silly. Like it's like scoring, I don't know, flowers or something. But, you know, over time, people would email me a lot and say, I want to score they were the people who didn't want to spend as much time thinking about wine as I did. It was shorthand, right, for quality. And they do the QPR, the quality price ratio, quality, the measure is the score, price, and they try to optimize, even though that can get you into drinking maybe a Beaujolais when you prefer a robust Cabernet. But, you know, what are you going to do? So I do score wines. I probably will never walk away from that. I'm comfortable doing it now, but it's also a service to my readers. They want them. So yeah. my passion will always be in writing, but the service component is in the scores. And it's just, I was a total score snob at the beginning <laughs> because I thought, you know, it's like uh, the difference between recipes in the food world and those moving food memoirs. I want to be where the real action is, you know, the long form narrative. That's where the writers are, you know, recipes, wine reviews, house fires. <laughs> But I had to get over myself. I'm still doing that. And realize, hey, these reviews or the the scores themselves are, are you know, people want them. So, you know, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and you've had a lot of success with your newsletter, over 300,000 subscribers over your 20-year history. What's the key value proposition of subscribing to the newsletter? Sure. So the newsletter itself is free. What you pay for on my site is access to the wine reviews. So the actual scores and tasting notes that I give each wine, the mobile apps are free. So you'll get all the information on the wine. You just won't get my score and tasting note until you pay up (laughs) three bucks a month. So the value of the newsletter is that's where all the pairing tips are. So we go into much more depth in the courses or the course, but the newsletter has quick tips like, you know, is you know would you normally put butter or lemon on this food if it's if it's butter go with a maybe an oak chardonnay if it's if it's lemon go with a zesty acidic or racy riesling or sauvignon blanc tips like that quick tips that help them find better wines deepen their pleasure that's what they're paying and i do a lot of videos so again i'll repurpose my television videos in the newsletter but those are all quick tips and that's what people want from that And do you have a sense of how you acquired all these subscribers? Like what were the big marketing channels or reasons, ways of which you built eventually to 300,000? Sure. So being one of the early adopters coming from high tech and having a website back in, as I say, the Paleolithic era of, well, it was 2000 that I started the website and I started emailing friends and family at that time. Wasn't even a newsletter, it was just an email to everybody. So that evolved. So time has been on my side, but also the two books that really exploded it for me because 
not only did the books themselves reach a wider audience, because I was fortunate enough to work with Random House for both of those books, but also the book tours. I mean, it opened up my eyes to television stations. It's how I got on TV the first time. Is I would it, they'd interview me about the book and they'd say, well, "Do you want to come back and talk about I don't know wines for turkey dinner?" And sure. So that opened up all that media that I never knew existed and gave me those contacts. So that that was the early boost. But now, as I say, it's the podcast, and it you know it helps that I've been fortunate enough to you know be recommended by the New York Times for the podcast and other lists. But it's. Those are the people, those podcast people, whether you're on lists or not, they tell other people, ah, you really want to learn about wine? Go listen to this. And then they stay with you. They're very loyal. And then they subscribe to the newsletter. Yes, that's the grand plan. That's the big master scheme. <laughs> it's like, okay, now take my course. Yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there a really high overlap between people who have taken your course and people who are in your newsletter? Is it like that whole, is there that Venn diagram? Is it squarely in the subscribers of your newsletter? The biggest overlap is between the podcast and the courses. Oh, really? They're okay. big commitment. Mm. And then the books, but that's petering off because, you know, the last one was 2011. I really so. dislike that yeah. terminology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, that's personal, isn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to be saying that all the time now. <laughs> you can, a- you can well, edit that Well, now I have out. to teach my daughter, Piper, that she shouldn't like the term pipe down. <laughs> oh, <laughs> So cute, Piper. <laughs> That's great. No, but yeah. Oh, so anyway, so the podcast and the courses have the strongest overlap. Interesting. Yes. Okay. So yes, commitment. And, and and you find that the podcast is usually the first one, and then they move. From, and it's hard because you don't get that much information from podcasts, right? In terms That's of the true. data, the analytics. So, but you're you're That's assuming true. that people go from the podcast over into the course. Yes. Yes. I mean, as soon as they. Whenever anybody registers for the website or the podcast, you know, I'll ask them, do you want the newsletter? But what I find, you know, because I always follow up after someone signs up for my course, I I always ask, how did you hear about the course? And it's usually the podcast. And so I realize that they're the best customers I have. They're not the most as with everything, but they're the people who will pay (laughs) and because they've gotten to know me. Like, you know, I know myself, I didn't take my first online course about how to create online courses, kind of meta, until I listened to the podcast of a woman who taught online courses, how to create them. I listened to all 156 episodes. I just binged and then I felt I knew her. I could trust her. She knew what she was talking about, but it was only after listening to all of them that I finally signed up for her course. Interesting. So, and in terms of other media driving towards it, in terms of social media, I'm curious on what are you doing, either YouTube or Facebook or Instagram to TikTok, even to drive people to there. And like, have you seen the same kind of similar growth just at, at an earlier stage than the podcast, or how has that worked out for you? Yeah, the social media will tend to get people either over to the newsletter or requesting my free wine and food pairing guide, <laughs> which your listeners can get too. So they'll tend to be low commitment and not paying. So they'll come in through those channels, but then they're in your circle of communication and you hope to grow with them in trust in other ways. So yeah, with social media, you kind of have to be there, especially if you want to publish another book. They're always going to look at your platform, though nothing, nothing beats email. Like it seems so retro, nothing beats email. Mm -hmm. It's that direct, you own it. It's not rented land like social media is, but you kind of still have to be on all all the places. So 
I am, but I get help with that from an assistant. And so she will flag anything that needs a personal response from me, but she's posting the content, whether it's repurposed from uh, TV or somewhere else to keep the channels alive. So I'm assuming that you're in your podcast kind of like teasing out like, hey, and by the way, you can like mentioning it on you know, at least once an episode about your, about your courses, and that's going to help that conversion. That's a, a correct assumption, right? Yeah, I do. Um, what I tease is that they can take a free class with me at nataliemcclain.com forward slash class. So that's a webinar. All right. It's going to give you food and wine pairing tips, half a dozen of them. So deliver value first. And then the bottom part of it or the last part of it is talking about my course, my online course for which you would have to pay. So I'm always driving people to something free, whether it's the pairing guide that they like or the free pairing class online, because you got to warm them up, I think. There's just some people who will stumble on my website, look at the course section and just buy it from that. But they probably know me in some other way first. Right. It's interesting. So how often, and these are live classes that you're running for free, on a yep. regular basis and they just yes. fill up a spot and you do a zoom class exactly. or something like that. And, and okay, they reserve their spot. Yeah. I'm always running them. Yeah. I love it because there's a live chat going on and I'm answering questions, but people love it because they can select a time and a day that works for them. And there's lots of choice. So you get lots of people coming in that way. And even if, even if they don't buy the course, they're still in my world now. So that's a good thing too. And your paid course, what's the framework of that? Is that a multi-course thing or multi-course meal course? But is, or is it a, a single class? or It's um, five modules. And so each module has pre-recorded videos, workbooks, quizzes. And we work our way through the major grapes, the major pairings. Again, the food pairings is a big part of it. And I'm always adding new modules like, you know, holiday, turkey dinner, Okay, let's look at all, not just turkey, but all the ways you can cook turkey. And then all the side dishes, let's pair them all with wines in case, you know, you're really into cranberry sauce. And then, but as I say, there's also a live component that continues for life, like those biweekly tastings. We're always tackling a different topic, either a food and wine pairing topic, or let's just dive down onto, you know, New York Riesling or whatever it is, so that there's the the two components work together. Yeah, are those five components? Those five, the five classes that are inside that one, or five modules, class days yeah, that modules. are in there? Yeah, modules. Sorry, thank you. Are those five modules that are in there? Are they all recorded, or is it is it on demand, or is it, or is there a, is there an option to do a full on live session with you? Yeah, both. <laughs> so all of okay, the modules cool. are pre recorded on demand. You can download them offline, like if you're traveling and you want to watch them while you're on the plane or by the beach. And there's probably I took, as I mentioned, I took a course on how to create online courses. So they're all snackable. They're all like seven to nine minutes. There's probably 70 videos, 70 or 75. So you can go through them quickly or you can binge watch Netflix style if you want to get through them all in less than a day. So it depends on what you want to do, but people love being able to start when they want and, you know, resume it maybe six months, a year later, it's lifetime access. So and I think that's the way online courses will go because people are busy and they want to have that flexibility. But the biweekly tastings are live and in person with me via Zoom. Interesting. So yeah. what areas of your business are you the most excited about going forward? The courses, 
the podcast. I love the people I get to meet like you. You both are going to come up on, on the podcast in a couple of weeks. We're going to chat. We'll switch the tables here. Um, but I love meeting all sorts of fascinating people. I, I love, I look for storytellers, someone who can share with my audience, not just information, but ways to deepen their pleasure of wine, their understanding of wines, tell some stories. So I'm always excited about the upcoming guests that are coming on the podcast. But also, I, you know, I'm looking forward to to writing my third book. So it'll be more of a memoir than the first two books, but still deeply, deeply rooted in the world of wine. Cool. So obviously, the last 18 months or so has been a little bit chaotic and different for many of us around the world. I am curious now that as we're starting to come out of the pandemic, what are you most excited about in the world of wine for 2021? Wow. Like what have, what okay. have been, what have been like that you're just looking forward to seeing emerge or happen or, or do yourself? Sure. I'm looking forward to being able to visit wine regions again, you know, even locally, just we have some fabulous wine regions and I haven't you know, n- none of us have been able to visit them for a long time. And I, I, I just think it's such a beautiful way to learn about wine. I mean, you in the situation where you're tasting and you're seeing the vineyards and perhaps talking with the winemaker and so on. I'm also excited about going back to restaurants. That is my, I always call going out to restaurants my family sport because we're not very sporty, but we love to go to restaurants and, and that's where we talk and enjoy. And, you know, we used to try to go to restaurants and then book a theater. It's like, we'd never want to leave the restaurant table. It's like, I remember one, one night we gave away ballet tickets because we just were having so much fun at the restaurant. So I can't wait. I mean, we're, we're just opening up like that now, indoor dining here. So Saturday is our first night going back to indoor dining. Cannot wait. So yeah, and just trying new wines, still meeting more people through the courses, interviewing folks. I, you know, it's all it's all good. And just as a quick follow on, in terms of Canadian wine, as there's been a, you know, everybody I know in Canada keeps telling me how great Canadian wine is. If you wanted to kind of open up someone's eyes to the quality of Canadian wine, of dry wine specifically, which region would you be pointing them at or which style of wine would you be pointing them at uh, to check out? I tell them to take a cross-country tour, um, <laughs> picking favorite children here, but I'm from Nova Scotia, so I'd say start in the Annapolis Valley with Lac de Blanc and Tidal Bay, Atlantic Coast seafood, lobster, melting butter on the beach. Then I'd take you on a trip to Quebec, the eastern townships, I get you to try maybe some ciders, hard ciders, as well as uh, some really bright, crisp white wines, even Chardonnay. Then, of course, we come to Ontario and we take a visit down to Niagara, Prince uh, Paley Island. Prince Edward County is new, but so exciting. And all of these regions have such great restaurants often attached to the wineries. So it's really worth making the trip. And then, of course, we'd go out to BC, where there are another three or so different regions. But so I'd invite you to come and visit first, because I think that is the best way. It's also the most selection. But I'd also say, like, look beyond ice wine. Don't forget it, but look beyond. I mean, just recently, a wine from Niagara won the Chardonnay du Monde, best in show, best Chardonnay in the world, not for Canada, but in the world. And um, whatever you think of different competitions and medals, you know, Canadian wines are are really seriously good on the world stage and, you know, really worth trying. 
Awesome. Well, uh, Natalie, we, we appreciate you joining us and spending uh, your morning with us talking about everything you do in the wine industry. And, you know, as we've learned a lot and, you know, I think Peter and I might try to steal a few of your ideas uh, <laughs> for uh, running Please courses do. or something like that. It's uh, no, it was great. Very informative. And I invite any of your listeners, if they're interested in any of the things I've mentioned, they can find it all at nataliemcclain.com. Take the free class forward slash class or nataliemcclain.com forward slash X for X Chateau to get that free wine and food pairing guide. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.